Welcome to episode 57 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. It's April 18th. And in today's episode, we're going to return to the broad theme of historical diseases with a focus on a topic that has interested us throughout, historical epidemiology. Our guest today is Jim Webb. Jim is research professor and professor emeritus at Colby College, where he taught for many years and is by training a historian of Africa, the environment, medicine, and disease. And I'll also just note that it's a particular pleasure to have Jim on since I did my undergraduate work at Colby. Jim is the author of six books, including Humanity's Burden, A Global History of Malaria in 2009, and the 2020 book, which we'll talk about today, The Guts of the Matter, A Global History of Human Waste and Infectious Intestinal Disease. He's also written extensively in various venues, from short public-facing venues to long-form academic articles about historical epidemiology and the need for more research in the field. So hi, Jim. Hi. Delighted to be here, and thank you all for the invitation. Yeah, thanks Thanks for joining us. So Jim came highly recommended by a number of guests over the past few months, so we thought it was time to have him on. He has worked a lot on various diseases, including malaria and intestinal diseases. So looking at these questions over a long time frame has also pushed him to try and understand the connections between human activity, environmental factors, and the disease itself. Again and again in this podcast, we've seen that the interaction between all of these factors and others hasn't really been researched historically, either at all or almost at all. We all tend to assume somewhat of an ideal of, of how a disease breaks out without really understanding the process, even in contemporary times. Maybe there simply are too many variables involved. Yeah, it's something I've thought a lot about recently in some of these episodes, that the how and why a disease breaks out and does more or less harm is often not explored, but simply assumed in many contexts. A good example was just a few weeks ago where we talked to Dora Varga about polio, where she notes that people had guesses as to why polio struck as many people it did and when it broke out. But once people in the West and the East were largely vaccinated, these questions actually became less of a focus. It's also something I think about, obviously, with our work on Plaguely, where there's kind of a static idea of how and why a disease occurs, rather than thinking about it or trying to understand it as a dynamic process. Kind of a one-size-fits-all approach. But before we open the interview with Jim, how's everything with you, Lee? Right. So my daughter was sick for the week. So that was, I guess, exciting or not really exciting. But on a more positive note, as of today, masks are not no longer required in public. So you can walk around without a mask. And that actually is much nicer to do, especially that it really turned warm over here. So it, it feels like summer now. As for my university, I'm beginning to teach in person tomorrow after receiving the message for that today. We also have a large faculty meeting on Wednesday. So things are definitely going back to normal. And I also have heard rumors, which may or may not be true. And I guess that once this episode is out, we'll already know that all classes are supposed to return to in-person teaching very shortly. Let's put it that way. So... Have they announced how in-person teaching is going to be done? Is everyone going to be required to wear masks indoors? Have you spread out and social distance within these rooms? Or is this all just going to be a complete free-for-all once this begins tomorrow? Well, I'm not sure if it'll be tomorrow, 
because they haven't actually announced that the, the official complete reopening. So the limited reopening actually makes sense. So there are specific classes, specific seats in those classes in which people can sit. All students are supposed to wear masks, teachers are not. And those classes are also being recorded and broadcast to students who cannot enter campus because they haven't been vaccinated, for example. So that's fine. But if they do go for complete reopening, that seems much more of a free-for-all. There are currently no concise plans about how to do that. And it seems that a lot of the decisions of how exactly to do this and the burden of figuring out individual problems will fall on teachers. Out of curiosity, was this announced from the government or from your university that this is happening? Yeah, it's a good question. It may be related to the government. We haven't heard anything from the government. I mean, the, the rumors are currently about what's going on in the university from, from the top to my level, essentially. And what about you, Merle? How are things going in Annapolis? Yeah, so I had maybe more of a standard beginning of April in terms of activities. One, it's my birthday this past week. And two, my spring allergies are killing me. Happy birthday. Thank you, Lee. It was a normal birthday, quote unquote, I guess, to an extent compared to last year. Last year, we did a Zoom birthday. I don't remember if you were on that, Lee, but it was about 30 friends from all walks of life from undergraduate all the way up to postdoc time. Yeah, I was on. And if I remember correctly, it was 3 a.m. here. So I definitely <laughs> it was a fun time, let's say. Yeah, last year was basically a round robin roast of me by all of my friends. You know, everyone went around and told increasingly more and more absurd stories. But that's neither here nor there. This year, we had two groups of two other people in our backyard, you know, on the other sides of our fire pit that we have. Everyone is completely vaccinated. So that was good, but we obviously still spaced out and we still stayed far away from each other and drank some nice wine. So that was quite nice. So are things going back to normal for you now? I mean, do you see yourself having larger and larger social events in the near future? I mean, as you know, Lee, I have small children and you don't really do fun social events when you have small children to begin with. So it's not as if I'm going to go to a bar anyways. But one of the funny things which connects my two opening points was I have allergies, so I was sneezing a lot. And I had to tell both uh, groups of people independently when they arrived, like, you know, I'm sneezing, I'm not sick, it's just my spring allergies, which is not something, you know, you normally explain, but I went out of my way because I felt, you know, everyone's slightly freaked out about any type of symptom that anyone has. So that was different and new, I suppose. So among your group of friends, for people who have been vaccinated, how concerned are they about other people who have been vaccinated? Is this a concern at all? Or is a person who is vaccinated kind of like clear and you're not really thinking about the possibility of them having COVID or you being infected by them? I mean, I think it's personal choice, although I'll say based on the people who were there last night, there were fewer stringent actions, even though everyone who was over has been basically bubbled up within, you know, their group of four or five friends to begin with. So it's not as if there are that many interactions, but people were less kind of crazy about staying, you know, 10 feet away from each other kind of thing. So that's at least, I guess, a, a step in that direction. 
So where are you, Jim, and how are things there? I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, things are, well, let's see. I suppose from my point of view, they're pretty good, although Charlottesville is still rated as having a very high risk of transmission. At the University of Virginia, there have been spikes in uh, infections linked to sorority and fraternity rushing uh, events and parties. But the last spike seems to have been dying down. And there are many who have been vaccinated within the immediate vicinity of, of Charlottesville. So I've been vaccinated. My wife has been vaccinated. I don't feel invincible. I don't feel like I'm 20 years old and nothing is going to happen to me. But I feel much more confident and secure than I did before vaccination. Does the university have a policy of somehow encouraging students to get vaccinated? Are they involved in that at all? Or, You know, this is something I'm actually not very well informed uh, about because I, at this point, don't have any direct relationship to the university and I'm living kind of in a different part of town. So I've been over there a few times. Students are masked. Everyone is masked uh, on the university, but somehow or another, they've still managed to you know, transmit at pretty high levels. Out of curiosity, since you mentioned the sororities and fraternities and you've worked on intestinal diseases, has anyone reached out to you about the testing that they've done where they check the sewage coming out of the houses? I know that's one way they were trying to figure things out early yes. on. Yes, I've had um, some discussions with microbiology graduate students who are sampling the sewage in the area near my rental house. And so they are, they are tracking it. Yeah. That's pretty cool. As I said, yeah, it, is pretty was, cool. it was something I noticed early on as one way they were tracking stuff. And I didn't see any announcements of it more just that they were doing it and finding high levels and shutting down sororities and fraternities in various places because mm -hmm. of it. it seems very American for lack of a better mm -hmm. term, <laughs> but maybe we can turn now to the interview and as I always do, and the running joke on this podcast, as listeners know, I'll open with a quote unquote easy question that's probably the most complicated of the entire interview. So how people, as we kind of almost just hinted at, get sick is very complicated based on environmental, ecological, and human factors and of the disease itself. Could you maybe first sketch out what these broad areas are? As you know, succinctly as you can. And I know, again, this is unfair. Yeah, that's a very large question. And to those categories, I think I would also add genetic uh, factors and uh, epigenetic factors. So if we just take one disease, for example, such as malaria, one can see that in order to understand the uh, transmission of malaria, you need to understand what is called the bionomics of the mosquitoes, that's to say, which species of mosquitoes, of Anopheline mosquitoes are involved, um, where they breed, what re biological requirements they have, um, and what the relationship of those ecologies is to human settlement or other patterns of human behavior. Then you also have to think about the biological requirements of the parasites. Uh, that are being transmitted, which are you know, influenced by temperature and um, a variety of other 
variables. So all of a sudden, just thinking about malaria, it gets pretty complicated because you're not just talking about human beings. You're not just talking about parasites. You're not just talking about mosquitoes, but you're talking about the broader ecological contexts in which transmission occurs. And because there are lots of subspecies of monopoly mosquitoes that transmit, my gosh, uh, looked at globally, it's kind of like a mosaic of different types of intensities of infection. And I should say that the different mosquito species have different competencies. Uh, and so some are very capable of transmitting malaria, some are not. Some mosquitoes, when they try and host the parasite, get sick and die, or they dot live just long enough to transmit and then they die. Others are quite robust uh, in the face of uh, infestation. So they're just a very broad range of variables. So you mentioned both genetics and epigenetics. So would you mind maybe saying a few words about both of those? Sure. Let me just say a little bit about genetics and link it again to malaria. I mean, there are different species of parasites. We call the diseases that they call so malaria, but they're caused by different um, species of parasites. The ones that are most common globally are vivax malaria and falciparum malaria. Falciparum malaria is a really deadly one. Vivax can also kill you, but most people survive pretty well and just get sick, sometimes repeatedly. Well, if we look, for example, just at the genetics of African populations in West and West Central Africa who have been exposed to malaria pressure uh, infection for a very long time, it's kind of stunning. Um, we see that there is a genetic mutation known as Duffy antigen negativity, which is expressed in about 97 to 98% or 99% of the population, and which renders them completely unable to be infected by vivax malaria. The consequence of this is that in deep time, when vivax malaria was effectively squeezed out of Africa, that ecological niche was filled by falciparum. And this is why almost, well, 90% of infections, maybe 95% of malarial infections you know, throughout Sub-Saharan Africa are falciparum malaria. And it's extremely dangerous. And this is why Af the African malarial environment is the worst in the world and why almost all deaths from malaria occur in sub-Saharan Africa. And that pressure, the exposure to falciparum infections has also produced a genetic response in African populations that have to do with uh, hemoglobin mutations. The most famous of them is sickle cell, um, but there are others and they produce limited protection and at a significant human cost. So that if you receive from both parents sickle cell gene, historically, you were not likely to survive to the age of sexual reproduction. But if you received sickle cell from one family member, mother or father, and uh, a regular hemoglobin gene from the other, then your chances of dying from falciparum malaria were significantly reduced. It might come with additional health problems, 
but you had protection from that most lethal challenge. So there's a couple of examples of genetic factors that play into the transmission of disease. Epigenetic um, factors are much less understood, and I hesitate to really discourse very much about them because it's a field that is growing. Um, we have some evidence that suggests that some historical experiences with extreme stress are passed on, uh, not to all progeny, but to, to many, and that there's a statistical effect uh, that's historical in nature. So there are epigenetic factors that have to do with lack of access to food, starvation, famine. Um, there may be others that are psychological and that have to do with genocide or torture or enslavement. And this is something that's still being worked out, but it's clear that there are epigenetic factors that are important in thinking about the history of human health. And that's really different from infectious disease and really different from chronic disease. And it's kind of a different category of thinking about vulnerabilities to infections. So just to understand, when you discuss these different factors, when we think about, let's say, ecological factors, how abstract or concrete are these, right? So I know that in different models, we give numbers to various variables, but are these abstract variables or are these more concrete or empirical variables? What are those numbers? It, of course, depends on exactly what we're talking about. If we go back to the mosquito examples again, let's say we were looking at the survival of the parasite. Well, it definitely has a temperature range so that if you have a mosquito that's harboring a parasite and that mosquito is outside of the temperature range uh, that the parasite can support, the parasite won't survive. So that, yes, that, and with regard to some variables, they're pretty straightforward. But the problems are that there are just so many of them and they interact and it is one complicated situation. Before the Second World War, there was a field of research known as malariology. Malariology was highly, I wouldn't say interdisciplinary, it was highly multidisciplinary. And it was ecologically based. And a great deal of effort went into trying to understand the bionomics of different mosquitoes. Entomologists had a big role to play because it was really easy to say, well, we would like to try and interrupt malaria transmission in this environment. What do we do? We've got some tools we could deploy. You had to know, well, what mosquito species were really the problems? Otherwise you could just go out and kill the wrong species and not interrupt malaria. So you had to know where the species were, when they bred, how they bred, so forth and so on. Much of that multidisciplinary approach disappeared um, with the advent, for example, of DDT and other synthetic insecticides, because it now seemed in the immediate post-war period that you had a tool that was so effective against all mosquito species 
what the heck was the point of studying the different mosquito species if you could just go out and kill them all? Let's just do it. And so you could spray and the, the hope was, well, we'll just be able to interrupt transmission by hitting the areas that we think are problematic with DDT. Environmental historians, disease historians, ecological historians, people working in historical epidemiology, the few of us that would self-identify that way, are moving back toward something which is more explicitly multidisciplinary. And I don't really think it's interdisciplinary. I think it's multidisciplinary. It means developing competencies in different disciplines or working with people who have competencies in different disciplines. So could you maybe describe that process of what historical epidemiology is or how you see it developing more recently? Well, I think that there are different ways to answer this. One is to say that there is a branch of historical epidemiology which is interested in the history of the present. That is to say, how did we get to where we are with certain methods of disease control? And how efficacious are they now and how were they in the past? So one focuses on the investigation of past interventions and what was its impact on human health? And what were the untoward or unanticipated consequences? To try and create an empirical record, much of which exists uh, in some form or another in archives. For example, the World Health Organization archives. Uh, they were long closed uh, to anybody who wasn't from the WHO itself. Uh, then they had a retirement of the chief archivist and a new archivist came in. I was the first person admitted to the parasitological archives of the World Health Organization so many years ago and just worked for months and months and months in the parasitological archives working on African malaria because there's just an enormous you know, amount of material that's there. So one focus of historical epidemiology is looking at kind of contemporary disease challenges and trying to figure out what has been done to control them up to this point and how efficacious it was or how inefficacious. Other emphases have to do with looking for consilience in trying to produce understandings of past historical processes, disease processes, and that are falsifiable so that if we are trying to understand what are the contexts in deep time in which malaria was transmitted? Well, for a long time, it was assumed that malaria in Africa, well, it must have been pretty recent because many people held today what we might see in contemporary uh, society as highly prejudicial views about Africans. The idea was, well, Africans, are, they, they were living in um, very primitive circumstances. They were living in small groups and were hunting, and the population densities were not high enough to allow for the transmission of malaria. And additionally, people were mobile. Ergo, 
there couldn't have been any malaria transmission, uh, particularly falciparum, in deep time. Just infeasible. But in unpacking those assumptions and looking at, well, what has been discovered in, for example, physical archaeology? Oh, well, in the middle mid-90s, for example, uh, archaeologists digging in tropical Africa, where very few archaeologists ever dig because the assumption has been, well, there's nothing to find. Let's hit Rome. Let's dig up Greece. Let's look at the Mediterranean where they're really interesting finds. Why would you want to go to sub-Saharan Africa? There's nothing there. They started digging in along the Zaire River, and they went down to levels that they could date to around 90,000 years before the present. And at 90,000 years before the present, they didn't find any evidence of permanent settlement, but they found evidence of seasonal settlement. And seasonal settlement, that was pretty significant. Hundreds of people, certainly, maybe a thousand, maybe 1,500 people meeting and staying for months along the banks of rivers. Oh, well, this is an environment in which you can easily transmit malaria. You have enough people to do that. That's no problem. So when looking at um, certain types of deep problems um, and drawing upon evidence from different disciplines, it's possible to develop hypotheses for disease transmission that don't violate the findings in disparate disciplines. So that consilience is finding hypotheses and postulates that are consilient with what's known in a variety of disparate disciplines. So those are two examples of uh, kind of different thrusts in historical epidemiology. So it seems that as a discipline or field, it really covers anything from the recent past to the very, very deep past, like the example you just gave. Do the methodologies used in both cases have anything in common? I mean, I'm thinking about, for example, the distinction between quantitative methodologies, which are probably easier to do in in the more recent past, right, in the past few decades, and other methodologies, whether qualitative or maybe you can reach some kind of quantitative methods for the distant past as well. So, so how would you characterize historical epidemiology with regards to the methodologies it uses or the, the approach really? Yes, I'm not sure that I would look at it through the lens of methodology so much as the types of evidence that are available. So like in, in recent times, well, you have quantitative evidence for certain, but you have documentary evidence of a lot of different types. Uh, everything from memoirs to technical reports to lab reports, on and on and on. In physical archaeology, you have the reports of those people who are working on those sites in deep time and, you know, their interpretations of it. Um, and when you read across disciplines, then it has a way of illuminating assumptions. 
I mean, one of the ways that I was drawn into uh, some of the work on early malaria and trying to reinterpret the microbiological evidence for the emergence of genetic mutations to malaria pressure was I was reading an article, highly technical, in clinical microbiology reviews, and you kind of get to the end of the article and they explain the framework in which all of this evidence is being uh, examined. And the assumptions that they were working with were straight out of African history circa 1960. So it was clear that there was an enormous body of evidence. It couldn't possibly mean what they thought it meant because we knew from a variety of other disciplines that these assumptions that they were working with were no longer valid and they couldn't be supported. So it was necessary to try and figure out a way to build a different framework that could accommodate, that was consilient with all of the findings in microbiology, but was also consilient with what we knew about, for example, archeology, span or what we knew about archeobotany, or what we knew about historical linguistics, or what we knew about historical demography. And if you had any interpretation that violated what was known in those other fields, then it was no longer tenable. So how are you guys trained? Just- I'll tell you, my own training is in economics, economic anthropology, um, African history, quantitative methods. That was kind of my formal training. But I immediately went back to where at West Africa, where I'd been living for many years, where I'd been living for three years, I moved back to West Africa, to work on a project that was trying to assess the ecological impacts of the construction of large dams on one of the major river systems in West Africa. So this is the mid-1980s, first generation of environmental impact analysis. I don't even think we called it by that name. We're making things up as we go along. Uh, We have people from a lot of different fields. You have fish specialists, soil specialists, animal people, mosquito people. Everybody's trying to work together and trying to figure this out. I was doing the economics. Uh, for the project. And I was kind of charged with trying to integrate what other people thought from their disciplinary training and what they were discovering. So that was, I think, for me, pretty formative. And it caused me to learn how to ask what sometimes are embarrassingly basic questions Uh, about people's disciplines and what they're finding. Uh, It's kind of like just beginning the study of a foreign language when all you can sound like is a child and you're just, you know, you're you're learning how to say, you know, my name is and learning to count and so forth. But after you get used to doing this a while and you uh, get over whatever in feelings of humiliation you might initially experience from not knowing what you should really know, where you think you ought to know because they know it and you don't. Once you get into the business of kind of working um, across disciplines and asking questions that pull out from their knowledge base what you need to know, that I think is what has helped me work in historical epidemiology because it just, 
I don't feel uncomfortable uh, or not very uncomfortable dealing with materials from quite a range of different disciplines. So this is something that I think, at least in my work, and probably Lee, you would agree in your work that has been very fruitful, right? The talking to people on a very, very basic level to start so you can build up shared vocabulary, but that's not even the right word, right? That you understand each other's terms that might be the same word, but you use it in different ways is kind of key. But it does obviously bring to mind something that I always get asked when I talk about this, which is there's an institutional framework in academia, at least in the historical field, that very much pushes against this, right? That collaborative projects are not necessarily supported. You still have to do your single authored monograph. So how does that change? Or do you see it just as a gradual thing that's slowly going to happen over time? I think that it remains unusual for the reason, some of the reasons are those that you've identified. Uh, there's some institutional pressures against it. Historians in particular don't want to be seen as non-historians uh, by their colleagues. Um, they want to kind of stay, stay within the fold. So there's that. I think that the long-term prospects for multidisciplinary investigations of many sorts including historical epidemiology, will ultimately have to involve a different model of undergraduate training. So as it is now, for example, at Colby, where you went to school, Merle, you had a major, you might have two majors, and you had some distribution requirements. So for those in the people in the sciences, they were in the labs most of the time. And then it was a little bit like a spice. Oh, why don't you take a course in poetry? That will be good for you. Uh, why don't you, you know, you need some distribution in history. Yes. Why don't you take a course in history? That'll be good for you. And then get back in the lab because, you know, you're going to be there until midnight. So I think that the model of educating people in majors is an inheritance of the 19th century. And I think at this point, it's dysfunctional. So I think that the solution or one solution is for example, to require three minors, one in the natural sciences, one in the social sciences, and one in the humanities. So that students have an extended experience of different ways of thinking. And it's not dilettantish. You could still have people majoring in addition to doing three minors if they were intent on doing that. But most specialization would occur at the graduate level. And to take one field of research and practice that uh, might be used in support of this model, you could look at the training of medical doctors because it really doesn't matter what your undergraduate major is. You could major in art and become a physician. You have to take the core science courses, and sometimes you do that in a post-baccalaureate program, sometimes not. But it's clear that you can be a history major, you can be a physics major, it doesn't matter. You can be a chem major, a bio major, uh, and the like Russian studies major, and be a, be a physician. So I think that that is one solution 
to support more broadly from research in the field of historical epidemiology, which I see principally as an extremely practical application of historical knowledge, whose principal audience is in public health and to a lesser degree in medicine and biomedicine. So that I am interested in producing materials about the historical experience of health for people who are concerned with public health. And to do that, I think that historical epidemiology is going to have to be integrated in excellent departments in schools of public health, such as schools, such as departments of epidemiology. So given that history, and especially pre-modern history, is full of really ambiguities and uncertainties, how do you incorporate those ambiguities and uncertainties within the, the narratives or stories that you pass on as this practical application of history? I mean, wouldn't public health practitioners, for example, prefer more certain answers? And can they do something with the uncertainties that you, we are bringing to the table? I think that the range of historical experience that's of most immediate concern to practitioners in public health is very shallow. So it extends back basically 19th century, 20th century. Uh, you're not going to get much uh, material that's going to be deemed relevant to people in public health from earlier periods. So that's why when talking about historical epidemiology, I kind of broke it into two and said, you know, that one of the fields is, or subfields, emphases, is on the history of the present. Some of the other kind of work that I've been involved with, which is global history and kind of deep history, to understand, well, what are the, what are kind of the deep contexts? I think that historical epidemiologists draw another distinction um, is not deeply involved with social history or cultural history, except as to the extent that those historical works can illuminate practices or vulnerabilities that are relevant for understanding disease uh, dynamics. Whereas most historians of medicine are social historians of medicine and interested in the social history and trying to reconstruct how people thought about disease, um, you know, what the experience was like, what was the political response to it and the like, all of which is tremendously interesting, but which does not have a very direct uh, bearing on contemporary, or sometimes it does, but not all, not all that often. So I would, I, would, I would say that it's a distinction to be drawn between social history of medicine and something which is much more practical. For, for some of the work that I do, I mean, I don't, I'm not writing for historians. You know, I don't really care if historians read the work. I mean, for me, I don't, I really don't care. If I'm writing an article, you know, in The Lancet, I'm trying to reach people in biomedicine. That's my target audience. And I'm trying to change the way people think about this kind of archive of experience that can be continuously explored so that history isn't kind of a thumbnail sketch, which is the way it is in public health today. You can tell stories about Jon Snow and the Broad Street Pump. 
and that, that somehow or another, it's kind of like talking about the Civil War, you know, in 30 seconds. And that's what people know about it. And that's what people know about Jon Snow. And to try and change their understanding of the past to be a body of material which is continuing to grow and which be, is going to be continuously consulted as we have new questions about the past. Do you also work the other way around? So do you convey ideas from the sciences, broadly speaking, or public health medicine to historians, or do you just... Well, I try to. I mean, when I'm writing books like Guts of the Matter or Humanity's Burden, I mean, it's bringing forward a whole lot of scientific material, you know, about that. And so, yes, so people are, are reading it. I mean, I would say that, yes, I would say so. If you look at the audience, even at liberal arts colleges, you know, for material of this sort, like at Colby, who would take courses in historical epidemiology, which is what I used to teach. And I think I'm actually the first person in the United States to teach a course called historical epidemiology. I would get students from the natural sciences and some students from the social sciences and maybe one history student, not Merle. And <laughs> then students from the humanities. It was a real mix of interests and disciplinary backgrounds. And so you had students reading the same materials and understanding them in very different ways. I mean, that tracks actually quite closely with what I've talked to a number of other people who've taught courses, not even as specific as historical epidemiology, but just on disease and plagues and pandemics. It's often not the humanities people who are taking it. It's actually the science and the social science students as well. Yeah. That was certainly my experience at Colby, you know, the natural science, the biology people, the pre-meds, when they realized, oh, no, they had to take a course in historical studies, <laughs> went right to historical epidemiology like they thought it would have some relevance for them. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, I, you know, my one science course or my my one non-lab science course was a, essentially a history course, which was on shadow of the bomb taught by a physics professor. And this is one of my like great courses that I still remember to this day because it was essentially a basic physics, basic chemistry course. And then you learned all about essentially how nuclear weapons and nuclear reactors work, which, you know, when you read a CNN article in North Korea is doing heavy water reactors, all that stuff actually is still very useful to know and to think with. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I have one other question, though, on this, which is, you know, how you frame this out in terms of modern, pre-modern divisions also tends to play out, at least I've seen and we've seen in terms of the impact people give to diseases in history, right? So that the farther back you go, the bigger the disease does stuff to the politics, the economics, the whole world itself, it seems like, which, you know, at least in our work doesn't necessarily seem to be borne out at all levels. At some levels, it certainly is. But people are more particular, obviously, when they have more evidence in, say, the turn of the 20th century. So is there a way to make those stories kind of link up together so that we tend to ask questions of the deeper past that don't assume, you know, everyone just kind of sat there and died, for example, and that the state collapsed? Let's just use those as, as two examples. I, I read your articles and uh, the one on in the American Historical Review on plague concept, which I really liked. So I would say that from my point of view, because I'm not involved in plague studies, I understand that 
these attributes of the epidemics have been more or less accepted um, within the profession until relatively recently. But this is not something that I uh, have ever believed or taught. So for me, perhaps influenced by, you know, William McNeil's Plagues and Peoples, my understanding of, in a broad way, even before I started working in this field, of the intensity of disease processes was largely a function of population concentrations. And because populations were so much smaller in earlier periods or in the areas of the world where you had dense populations, the impacts were going to be more circumscribed. That in a general way, I think that the intensity of some infections, including many important infections, have become more widespread and more impactful over time, not, not the other way around. And this is certainly, I believe, the story for intestinal infectious diseases with regard to urban populations and that the infections are worse in more densely populated areas and the crisis is one of scale. I um, think that we will find more evidence about the plague outside of Europe including in Sub-Saharan Africa. I do not know what it will show. It probably will not show effects comparable in scale to anything that happened in Europe or in the Mediterranean basin. But, you know, as Monica um, Green has been kind of bringing some of this evidence to the broader historical community, you know, there, there is a lot that's being learned about the big contours of plague um, in Eurasia. And, I take y'all's point that you cannot reasonably project any of the findings of one area in terms of the intensity or mortality of an infection to broad areas. I think that's an extremely well taken point. <laughs> but I think that over and I, but I think that we are kind of at an opening through which we're we're going to get more and more information and we're going to have a much more detailed and differentiated understanding of plague impacts in Eurasia, hopefully in sub-Saharan Africa as well, but that's going to be harder to get at. I think the irony, at least as, as I've kept thinking about this, is I think the more evidence we have, the more variable we're going to see that the impact of the disease is, which I think ultimately is going to change what people think, hopefully, in terms of what the model, the paradigm is, whatever you know phrase you want to use, whatever right. the concept. No, I agree with you. Yeah, um, I think so too. So you mentioned intestinal diseases, which is what your new work is on. Could you just give us maybe first a couple of examples of that? And then maybe we can use that as an opening to explore some of these other points we've been touching upon. Well, infectious intestinal diseases can be thought about categorically. There are viral infections. There are bacterial infections. There are protozoal infections, and there are helminthic infections, helminthic or worm infections. And so if we were looking for 
some examples, you know, of viral infections. We have polio virus, uh, hepatitis A, hepatitis E, norovirus, rotavirus. For bacterial infections, you know, we've got typhoid, salmonella. For protozoal infections, we have giardia, uh, amoebic dysentery. For helminthic infections, we have a lot of kind of annoying worm infections like pinworm. Uh, and then we have soil transmitted helminthic infections like roundworm, whipworm, and hookworm. So there are, again, different ecological settings in which infectious intestinal diseases can be transmitted or where it becomes impossible to transmit them. One good example is worms, like these uh, soil-transmitted helminthic infections, roundworm, whipworm, hookworm. They have to uh, be passed in human feces as eggs, and then the eggs have to mature in the soils. Ah, but they can only mature in certain types of soils. If you know the right kind of soils, they can't mature, and you're not going to have ongoing infections. So that the distribution globally of soil-transmitted helminth infections maps out pretty clearly on human defecation practices and soil types. So would you say that, broadly speaking, is figuring out the causes and effects more difficult for intestinal diseases? From my, from my experience, I wouldn't really say so. There's more variety, but for sheer complexity, there's nothing like malaria. If you want to really get a headache and just have a head ringer, I would encourage you to go into malaria studies because it's just phenomenally complex. And the infectious intestinal diseases are really much more straightforward and can be understood through human uh, defecation practices, um, hygiene, cooking, diet, and feces disposal practices. So much more social and cultural. Would there be a genetic component as well? I mean, do we know? Well, there's some things we know from um, genetic studies. We know that human beings have had soil-transmitted helminthic infections, particularly a roundworm, for really, a really long time, which also is kind of an interesting argument for very early seasonal settlement. Because when people are on the move, they move away from their defecations. They don't hang out near them. And it's only when you have settled populations that you have kind of areas that are set aside for defecation and where people are gonna be exposed if you have the right soils to uh, ongoing infection. So for example, with soil transmitted helminthic infections, well, we used to think that human beings got them in the course of the domestication of animals, particularly pigs, like when human beings started keeping pigs, we thought human beings got infected. That's one reason 
societies or cultures around the world don't, don't feel great about pigs. Others do. Uh, sometimes, you know, we don't want to eat pigs. Pigs are considered dirty. But we now know from other fields of knowledge that human beings infected the pigs, not the other way around. And the, the worms that pigs have, we gave to them. And so this is a really um, kind of important, I think, larger point, too, which is that uh, scientific studies considered within the field of historical epidemiology have a way of decentering human agency and getting us away from something that's just so anthropocentric. Like we usually just think of how diseases affected us. What diseases did human beings get and how did we get them and what the impacts were? Not so much that, well, like other animals, we're disease carriers and we're infecting other species and interacting with them. We're carrying some pathogens that are going to jump species barriers and infect other species. So it places humanity in kind of a more realistic, in a way, um, ecological context where you're looking at exchanges that are not simply through the lens of our own self-interest, like how on earth did we get this illness and who's responsible and what can we do about it? What then is a useful role for historical epidemiology in terms of archival knowledge that can be used by people today? You know, I will say this. I, you know, in terms of historical epidemiology, when I explain, you know, what I work on, many people have the response as follows. Why aren't we already doing that? It's not rocket science. It's like, of course, we want to know, like, what the effect of earlier interventions was. You can see that there are learnings from past campaigns that are immediately relevant to contemporary campaigns. I mean, just directly. And the, if you ask, well, why don't people already know that? The answer is that no one's trained to study it. You have epidemiologists who are trained utterly in quantitative methods. They've never been in an archive. They have no idea how to deal with those types of materials and they aren't trained to do it. So consequently, that archive of human experience is not consulted. And in malariology, it's so clear that every few generations, someone gets a really good idea. And they have no idea that somebody a couple of generations ago had that same really good idea and tried it out. And so you get this kind of repetition of programs, many of which don't work particularly well, but with a kind of historical, it's not really amnesia, it's not forgetting they never knew in the first place. It's just a kind of a disconnect with the past. So last week we had someone on who was talking to us about the 1918 influenza pandemic and concepts, ideas very similar to yours that you just pointed out about, you know, non-remembrance or non-use of what's already there materially. 
how do you actually make those things get implemented though? Right. So when someone comes up with a great idea, that's already been done, but you know, it could be used again, but how do we make sure that that memory lives on and that people are able to implement that policy with the right political connections, we might say. And maybe to follow up on this, could it not be the case that our structures of, of creating, maintaining and, and passing or transmitting knowledge between ourselves, I mean, essentially the infrastructure of academia is maybe too complex. There simply is too much. And the connectivity between the different groups is, is simply not strong enough because of all these. I mean, we spoke about disciplinary boundaries. We could also speak about field boundaries or really just national linguistic barriers. I mean, there's so many barriers that hinder this kind of connectivity of really understanding what's going on. And of course, there are all the other circumstances and, and requirements of our time, which also make this process of knowing what's out there, of really understanding and knowing what's out there more difficult, if at all feasible. Well, I think if we ask how this becomes useful, I think that the answer is through hard money in schools of public health, probably in departments of epidemiology. I mean, most people who work in departments of public health are on soft money. So they're always chasing grants and their attention is shifting from one project to another, depending on what the grantors want. You need to have people like in a department in arts and sciences on hard money who have as their scope of research historical epidemiology and where it is taught so that if you get a degree in public health or you're charged with a disease control project, one of the first things you do is to ask what has been done in the past and how efficacious was it? It's so straightforward. You know, you want to be able, and you've got something new that you're looking at, you want to be able to consult a body of knowledge that's going to be accessed by people who are trained to do it. I agree with you that there's, you know, obviously a lot of problems uh, in connectivity between people, which is why um, I've made the case for trying to train people in different fields as an undergraduate to in kind of inculcate multidisciplinary approach. Because realistically, there are very few, if any, significant human problems that can be successfully addressed from a single disciplinary perspective. And yet, that is the way that we train people in academia. Right. Yeah. And I think that's actually a very good point and a good thought to end this part of the episode, at least. So thanks so much, Jim, for your thoughts and, and the discussion, the interview. It's been great. Thanks. I've enjoyed it, too. Yeah. Thanks so much.
So I thought that interview was great because it touched upon a number of topics that we've discussed in previous episodes and his much longer knowledge of all these fields made it more of a deeper historical talk in terms of how we do work and how we think. Right. I agree. And I think that the more episodes we do, the more some of these themes tend to pop out. Maybe it's actually worth going back and listening to the first episodes if we ever have time to do that. But I don't think we've noticed or thought about these themes earlier on. And I think at this point, they seem to be much more prevalent in most of the interviews we're having. Yeah, I think it's because we know the rhythms of the stories, as it were, pretty well. And so we know when they're going to pop out and we're not as perhaps shocked by them. I mean, one obvious point that jumped out to me is he pointed out when it came to historical epidemiology that there is a divide between, quote unquote, practical application of history, which is really a 19th and 20th century and a 21st century historical approach and kind of everything else, which neatly tracks on with how this show itself functions, right? Guests who work on each of those two different time periods. Right. But it also raises the question that we've touched upon multiple times in the past, which is what do you, I mean, essentially we, right? We pre-modernists, is our research also practical or are we doomed to be impractical in a sense? Well, my view on this is, to an extent, obviously, the configurations of how people live and function are very different before the 19th century. But just because that's the case doesn't mean that there aren't ideas and questions and ways in which we can actually learn approaches to diseases in the present, right? And that by making this a hard barrier, we essentially say that us modern people are somehow better and we understand these practices much better. And we're going to learn from this history to not have bad things happen to us, which as all of us living during COVID know is simply not the case. Yeah, I think I would see it a bit differently. So the way I would frame pre-modernists is that I think that broadly speaking, at least, it's easier for pre-modernists to look forward in time than for modernists to look backward in time and really understand what's going on there. No, of course that's true. But also remember, pre-modernists don't like to think about the modern discourses in which the earlier writers were writing about their topics and how much that shapes their work, as you know very well from our own work. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So maybe to bring things back to the, the discussion of the episode itself, one of the things that Jim said that struck me was his conception of malariology, right? So the field of, of malaria studies, essentially. And he portrayed this as this really interdisciplinary field approach that in a sense has disappeared, right? So the way we think about ourselves in the present is usually defined by our discipline. So we would say, okay, I'm a historian, I'm a geneticist or whatever. And it seems that we could have organized things differently. We could have organized scholars based on their field of study, right? So everyone who is interested in malaria, whether they're historians, public health practitioners, ecologists, 
disease modelers could all work within the same field. But if you think about that field, either educating students, any level really, or even hiring, that can be a major change for the better, I think, a more holistic way to understand things like malaria. Yeah, but it also goes to, as he pointed out, the key moment, which we've long talked about of this mid-century public health campaign where different ideas and different practices really changed how some of this work was done. The other point I thought was interesting is when he openly said he actually doesn't write for historians, which I don't know how many historians openly admit that. It says something about a discipline, and, and I have to say, not something very good about a discipline. It's obviously something that Jim thought about, and I'm sure he has good reasons, right? I mean, he, he mentioned that external audiences are much more receptive to the kind of work he's doing. And maybe we historians, broadly speaking, should ask ourselves why. Why is this the case? And assuming that we're not happy with this situation, what are we supposed to do to change it? Yeah, what was actually funny, though, is I think he was much more optimistic than certainly you and probably me about some of these outcomes, right? I mean, he did propose a number of possibilities and I think, you know, has good ideas of how to change it. Now, whether or not that will happen is a different story, but it was heartening to hear someone be more positive than our usual negativity on the topic. Yeah, and it's not only us, right? So if you compare this episode to the previous episode with Sven Eric, who was not extremely positive about the impacts he could have on, on public policy. I mean, if, if you think about that specifically. Yeah, and Jim also had some particular outcomes, right? In terms of changing how undergraduate studies are done, right? I think he said something like three minors rather than a single major. I mean, in the US, I think, one could conceptually get to that point. I'm not quite sure how that would work in Israeli when you guys declare majors before you start university. Yeah, I think our system is much more specialized. You do declare majors before you start and, and you don't really have to take any electives or maybe very few electives in other departments throughout your, your degree, your undergrad degree. Yeah, it's funny thinking about the UK model of how people do academic work is even more specialized when it comes to the PhD than in the US because it's a shorter time frame and how quickly they have to publish it is also much shorter. So in a sense, while Key and I think I would support changes to the US system, the US system itself is actually more open, more liberal than most of the other ones in terms of people we've talked to. No, I agree. And as someone who's experienced the Israeli system, which is closer to the European system, in some ways at least, I think one of the strengths of the American system is the much broader education that you get, really at all levels. So beginning at undergrad and all the way through your PhD, really. So on that note, I guess we can transition to the next segment. And Merle, I don't know if you remember this, but we spoke about The Expanse, right? The, the last season, the recent season of The Expanse when it came out and you watched it very quickly and I wanted to talk about it and you, you told me that I had to watch everything before we can talk about it. So I have, I have finished watching all 10 episodes of the season and I would want to hear what, what you have to say about that. I'll just say, Lee, 
that it took you longer to watch one season than it took my older sister to watch all the seasons. She caught up in like three weeks and it took you, I don't even know how long. I don't even know when we started talking about this. I think more like three months, but yeah. So kudos to my older sister. But if you want to know my thoughts on this season, first of all, I have to cast my mind back to what it was about. But I think it was fine. It was very much one of those holding place seasons where stuff happened, but you knew that they couldn't possibly resolve everything. The crew splits apart, and then you know they have to come back together. And so they're teasing out each one of these storylines, sometimes in interesting ways, sometimes not. And I also think there were storylines they spent way too much time kind of getting through, right? If I recall, like saving people off ships or getting them off the earth just like seemed to go on and on and on. And I don't quite know what it did for either plot or character development. Yeah, I agree. I think this season has really cemented my thoughts on the show, which is to say that I think the overall plot and the world they've built is very impressive. I'm very much interested in that world and really the way in which it replicates some of the structures that we see today and just reimagines them in a sci-fi setting. So as opposed to, let's say, Star Trek or Star Wars, I think this is much more complex and much more interesting. But on the more negative side, I think the character development has a lot of space to improve, to put it mildly. Yeah, to me, the season spent a lot of time doing, as I said, I don't know what. And that's what's kind of surprising, knowing that it's the second to last season. There was a lot of stuff they could have done that they chose not to really move anything anywhere. You mean like one character being stuck on a ship and us spending like essentially an hour and a half of watching that character just try to get themselves out of that situation by themselves? That's exactly what I'm referring to. Great. So on this sci-fi space-related note, I guess, we can conclude the episode. And as usual, we'd like to thank the LePage Center for funding us. And of course, our webmaster, Verder Kanati. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and maybe finish episodes and seasons of shows faster than Lee, which shouldn't be too hard. <laughs>